And so I want to start this morning by asking you all a question. What was the last thing that you were really excited about? And I mean the kind of excitement that puts butterflies in your stomach and makes you smile just when you think about the fact that that thing is going to get to happen. So why don't you quickly turn to someone next to you and just share with them what that thing is for you. Maybe even talk a little bit about why it was um, exciting for you. Well, I hope that you've all had a chance to at least think about something. Um, so for me, I actually squealed with excitement this week when I got an email to tell me that a book I had pre-ordered in September was arriving a day early. Um, and I'll let that, uh, you decide how boring that, that probably makes me, that that's been the highlight of my week. <laughs> So I want you to hold on to that excitement as we continue this morning. Whatever that thing was for you, just remember that feeling. As we've already established, today is the second Sunday of Advent. And Advent is the season in the Christian calendar where we eat chocolate every morning and count down the days until Santa comes. Um, and if any of you are now worried about my the theology, I'll confirm that was a joke. <laughs> But Advent is a season of waiting. But it's an active and an expectant waiting as we anticipate the coming of Jesus. It's a waiting that's filled with that same sense of excitement that we were all just discussing together. Now, before we start digging into this passage, I do just want to mention that it is one that is just bursting with such rich and beautiful imagery. And so if I were to attempt to unpack all of that this morning, we'd be here for a lot longer than any of us would like. But so whilst I'm gonna pick out a few highlights, I'd really encourage you at some point this week to sit down with this passage, to read it through slowly and see what jumps out at you Maybe it'll be a word or one of these images and hold that with you as you go through this week. If you, were, if you were here last week, we had Andy Bevan from IJM sharing with us as we unpacked an earlier passage in Isaiah 9. And the words that were spoken by Isaiah in that passage, they were fulfilled at the birth or the incarnation of Jesus. Yet the passage that we are looking at this morning speaks to a second advent, the second coming of Jesus. And that's the advent that we are still eagerly awaiting today, when the current order of things will pass away and a new kingdom will be ushered in. Isaiah is writing against a backdrop of real darkness that's engulfing the people at that time. And it's into this darkness that he is speaking a glorious hope, a hope of a reconciled and restored world. And this hope, it's an undated hope, and that means it was an ever-present assurance for God's people. It's just as relevant to us today as it was in 700 BC. And this restored world comes under the reign of a perfect king, the Messiah. And the imagery Isaiah uses in our passage this morning helps us to understand who this king will be and what he will be like. 
In verse one of our passage, we read of a shoot coming forth, springing up from the stump of Jesse. And this is a reference to King David, whose father was Jesse. Now, King David was kind of the golden boy of kings, and all of the kings that came after him proved to be rather disappointing. The people at this time, they had lost their faith in this monarchy, and their hope of having a just and a righteous king, it was rapidly diminishing. Isaiah is predicting here that all signs of life from this monarchy will disappear. And at the time of the birth of Jesus, the house of David may still have been in existence, but it had been without royal power for around 600 years. It was merely a stump. As I've been praying through what I've had to share with you this week, it's actually been that image of a stump that's really struck with me. I'm unlikely to be unique in having experienced a time in my life where something that I thought was really fruitful and thriving just seemed to be felled and reduced to a stump. And I've just had this sense throughout the week that there may be someone here this morning and through no fault of your own, there's maybe been a passion or a dream of yours that you feel has been struck down I feel that God wants to say this morning that there's still life in that stump. There's a shoot waiting to spring up, and if you're willing to nurture it, like our passage says, it may then grow into a fruitful branch. It may have looked like all signs of life and vitality were gone and that all hope was lost for the house of Jesse. But in that humble stump, hidden life remained. And it was then that shoot springs forth. And Isaiah is pointing to a time when not just another king, but another David will reign. He's instilling the hope of a future perfect king whom God is going to send to lead his people. In the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, we have genealogies of Jesus, and these trace his ancestry all the way back to David. And so that gives us the evidence that it really is Jesus who Isaiah is talking about this morning. In the Gospels, we also read that the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jesus, and those words are also in our passage in verse 2, so it's another kind of confirmation for us. Through verse 2, there are six different attributes of the Spirit which are highlighted, and to possess all six of these in their fullness was something that was unique to the Messiah. And this shows us that the fruitfulness of the ministry of Jesus is at all times in the work of the Spirit. And it's in and through this ministry that we will see the Messiah's supreme authority, which leads to the execution of a perfect righteousness, justice, and judgment. I'm just going to be honest with you here and say that for a long time I would hear these words 
righteousness, justice, judgment, and they would be thrown around a lot in church sermons. And I wouldn't really understand what was actually meant by them. And if I'm going to be even more honest, I don't think I still do. One of the things that I have realized as I've been um, writing this talk this week is that I actually don't think I need to be concerned by the fact I don't understand them. Maybe I should be more concerned if I thought I fully did. Now, this might sound like a really strange thing to say, because these words are fundamental to who Jesus is. But I think it's for that reason that I never want to stop wrestling with what they truly mean, what they mean for my life, what they mean for our world. One of my wrestlings has always stemmed from the fact that judgment specifically is a word which I think has quite heavy and uncomfortable connotations for a lot of us. I think we have a tendency to view judgment as synonymous with ridicule. Most of my life, I felt judged for things like the color of my hair, my weight, my intellect, singing ability, what I do or don't eat, my clothes and makeup I wear, whether or not I'm a good person, and let's face it, I'm probably judging myself a lot harder than anyone else is. But I wonder how my view of judgment and how your view of judgment might change if we started to see it in a more biblical way and started to see it as solely synonymous with salvation. In viewing it this way, it really helps me to frame what is and what isn't important. Because none of the stuff that I mentioned before actually matters in the grand scheme of eternity. And this understanding can bring us to a place where we can realize that what really matters is that we're just trying our best to live a godly life, a life that is marked by righteousness and justice. And so bringing these words right back down to basics has really helped me this week in at least beginning to understand what they can look like for my life. In one of the commentaries I read this week, it described righteousness as spiritual integrity. And essentially that means, does what we say and what we do match up with what Jesus would say and what Jesus would do? And when we come to justice and bring that down to a, its most simple definition, it's equal and fair treatment. Can we honestly say that in all situations, we treat people equally and fairly with no preconceived notions coloring our view of them? Because I know I can't. I have had one of those weeks at work, which has had a lot of different meetings and trainings and trying to fit just my normal job around all that has been pretty exhausting. And on Thursday morning this week, I was kind of co-facilitating a meeting, and I thought it had gone pretty well, until one of my colleagues phoned me afterwards. And she said, Jess, 
you really need to watch back the recording of that meeting just to see your face when Kate started talking. The colleague continued. The way you rolled your eyes when you had to answer their question, oh my goodness, I was so glad my camera off. I was laughing so hard. And to make things worse, I'm not proud by any means of what I did next because I told this colleague that Kate had sent me an email that morning that was already questioning my ability to do my job properly. And so I was annoyed because I felt that in this meeting they were doing the same thing. Not my finest moment. What really strikes me in verse 4 of our passage this morning is that we see that this king needs no other weapon than his word. In his word, there is the power to effect change and to impose a divine will and order on things. One commentator put it this way, the king needs no other display of power and no other weapon of enforcement than the bare word that he speaks. And the same spirit, which is alive and working through Jesus, the spirit, the breath that gave power to his words is also working in and through us. So we need to remember the power that our words have too. I had ranted to that colleague in a way that was just honestly inappropriate. And the things that I'd said weren't even really true. If I'd actually had an issue with Kate's behavior, I should have spoken to her directly about that. I have since emailed this colleague to apologize for the way that I handled that conversation. And I wasn't apologizing there to make myself feel better. I was apologizing because not only was I acting outside of my values, but I was acting outside of Jesus' values. I don't want my words to be the ones that are perpetrating an unhealthy gossip culture. I want to be speaking words of light and life, ones that are full of justice and give people the benefit of the doubt. I want to treat people equally and fairly in what I say. I want to be trying my best to be living in line with the kingdom that that shoot of Jesse was brought about to usher in. Jesus is the embodiment of judgment, justice, and righteousness. In verses three to five of our passage, they show us that Jesus is always able to distinguish between truth and reality. He always sees beyond what is apparent and straight to the truth of things. And this is because he knows the divine principles of what is right and what is wrong. And he remains equally sensitive to all people, dealing with them even-handedly as he does execute that perfect judgment. It's in this context, and in the context of the just rule and reign of this king that we come to verses six to nine of our passage. And it's here, 
that we get such a beautiful and poetic picture of what this new kingdom is going to look like. Hostilities, they'll be reconciled. Our old fears, we can put them to rest. There will neither be a danger that strikes or a danger that lurks, and peace and safety, they're promised for everyone. Even nature itself will be transformed, and this transformation will be permanent. This section of our passage points back to the paradise of Eden and points towards the ideal state that creation will be put back into through the rule of Jesus. It's pointing towards the hope of that new heaven and new earth, and the entire earth will be transformed by personal and intimate communion with the Lord. It's a world where perfect righteousness, perfect justice, and perfect judgment will reign. And maybe in that world, I'll understand what those words actually mean. The world that we are living in right now can, and it often does seem really dark, it can feel as though we are simply bombarded with crisis after crisis through the news or whatever other kind of content that we consume. Whether it's a new variant in the COVID crisis, another chapter in the ongoing refugee crisis, the continual discomfort of the climate crisis, it's no wonder we're in an ever-expanding mental health crisis. And so often I find myself wondering, why? Why is our world and why are its people in so much pain? And it's then that I have to remind myself that the way things are now, it's not how they were ever intended to be. And it's not how they will be forever. Jesus came to earth to usher in the kingdom of heaven, but that kingdom has not yet come to its fullness. But we have this hope. It's Jesus. This is the time of year when we celebrate the birth of that tiny, fragile baby. And he's a baby who would grow to perform miracles. A baby who would grow to die for you and for me, and a baby who would grow to one day defeat death to save us eternally. And as if that wasn't enough, he is coming back. And he'll come back to wipe every tear from our eyes and give us a kingdom where there's no more death or mourning or crying or pain. I found this little verse in Revelation 22 this week, which says, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. And so we wait. We wait this advent through the darkness and confusion with expectant and excited hope. Because if we know nothing else, 
We know this. Soon. Amen.